This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. Our guest for this first COVID-19 edition of the podcast or COVID-19 era edition of the podcast is Lindsay Barr uh, from Draft Lab. Lindsay is a sensory specialist and has worked for large-scale breweries um, before going out on her own with Draft Lab. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Lindsay. Jamie. I'm excited to be here. We're going to focus on this episode on sensory things, uh, building a palate, understanding flavors, uh, building a language for those flavors, looking at how brewers, both pro and home brewers, uh, can uh, uh, approach uh, their brewing and understanding flavors of beer with a language attached to it to help build a kind of nuance and uh, focus to what they're doing. Um, Lindsay's going to kind of guide us through that because that is what she does for a living for brewing clients all over the country now with Draft Lab. Um, but first, Nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GD Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel GD ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize, like Russian River and Kasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and more, trust GD to chill the beer you love. Call GD Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, Old Orchard supplies craft juice blends from the heart of Beer City, USA. As the industry blending experts, they supply major national brands and growing breweries alike. They've been the best kept juicy secret in craft beverage for a year, but now the secret's out. Breweries across the board are experiencing a seamless transition to Old Orchard as their new juice supplier. So hop aboard the Old Orchard fruit train. Their sample kit starter pack is waiting for you at www.oldorchard.com brewer before we jump into the episode also i uh, just want to thank all of those folks who uh, applied for our craft beer and brewing cares grant program uh you know we announced a couple weeks ago that we were going to give away a hundred thousand dollars in advertising for craft beer and brewing to you know help some of these breweries that are significantly affected by the COVID 19 crisis and shutdown uh reach some audiences uh, uh you know, local audiences national audiences in the way that we know how to do it which is you know through our our advertising channels um we went through last week and actually ended up giving away $325,000 in free advertising. Um, and everyone who applied for that program is getting some free advertising out of it. Uh, so thank you all for that. Um, everyone through this entire national and international uh, pandemic is just trying to do their part. And we are going to try to do the same with ours. On to the podcast. Lindsay, talk to me a little bit about uh, your history in brewing. Uh, how you got to where you are right now, operating your own business, uh, building uh, sensory tools for professional breweries to evaluate beer and develop sensory programs for them. Uh, how'd you get here? Yeah. Um, well, so my my first educational background was in biochemistry and molecular biology. Um, so I've always kind of been a bit of a science nerd. Um, I started working in laboratories and found that that was just um, incredibly isolating and really just not that fun for me. <laughs> so um, at the time I was starting to get into home brewing and really loving the application of biochemistry in a way that could produce something delicious and fun to drink. So um, I then that kind of propelled me to go to UC Davis and um, work in the food science department to get my master's degree there. Um, through food science, I worked with Dr. Charlie Bamforth and um, studied some of the, I did some of the first initial research on gluten-free beer production um, or gluten reduction process. Uh, so that was pretty fun. I did that for a couple of years at Davis and um, ended up with a master's in food science and technology. Um, I then had a brief stint at Anheuser-Busch and um, in, in Fairfield and then um, started working for New Belgium. Um, and I was there for almost 10 years. I was there for just a little over nine years. And I was the, I started as a sensory scientist and moved into uh, managing the sensory program, doing consumer research, uh, research and development, and um, quality control as it pertains to flavor analysis. So um, at, 
at one point I moved from being a brewer who happened to be a sensory scientist to a sensory scientist that happened to work in beer. Um, and I'm not really sure where that shift happened, um, but sensory is, is certainly my passion. Um, and I love applying it to beer, but now with Draft Lab, um, we've been applying it to a whole bunch of different industries. And uh, some of what we've been finding is really the, the problems that different food and beverage organizations have are really the same as that of beer. Um, so it's been kind of really fun to apply what we've developed over time um, through like New Belgium and through my work with the American Society of Brewing Chemists and just through general sensory knowledge um, and adapting it to um, a whole bunch of different industries and making it really accessible. And that's kind of our objective with Draft Lab. So Draft Lab's existed for a little over four years. Um, and we recently, uh, as in the last couple of weeks, launched our second platform called Sample Ox, um, which is a consumer research platform. So um, we're hoping to round out the story and develop tools that are intended on helping brewers and food producers uh, make decisions about their products and their process using sensory analysis. Um, that's fantastic. Now, I have, uh, you know, through the scope of the magazine, we have uh, judges who sit on our panel who work for New Belgium here and there. I shouldn't say here and there. They're employees of New Belgium. They don't review New Belgium beer, of course, uh, but they've come out of that sensory training program. And so I have uh, built a appreciation for the work that you've done and training, um, you know, experienced tasters that have a highly tuned language for the flavors um, that they are perceiving. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, your first steps. Um, obviously, you've over the years, you've trained hundreds of people in the kind of sensory science and building their own palate and their own ability to start to be able to describe beer um, and describe those flavors and articulate what those flavors are. Um, where do you start? I think everybody remembers the first time they, you know, had something that really changed their idea of like what flavor could be. It's typically a really early memory, um, you know, having that first chocolate cake. Um, sometimes it's a really negative memory. Um, I was talking to a friend last night that said, oh, I can't, I can't eat ham because I had a really terrible experience with ham, um, like back when she was five years old. Um, so we make these really strong memory associations with flavor. Um, and that, that is something that is almost inexplicable and hard to describe. Um, so part of what we try to do in sensory training is embrace those memory perceptions that you have and embrace that emotional side. At least this is how I like to train. Um, so embrace that kind of emotional side of flavor and tie that emotion to new language. Um, unfortunately, at least in our culture, we don't often talk about talk about flavor in these um, kind of really verbose, articulate ways. We usually just say, I, I like it or I don't like it. It's good, it's bad. Um, and that doesn't really help us do the objective evaluation that is necessary for setting brand targets and running um, quality control programs at the brewery. Um, so I like to start with the emotion and start with making a memory association with it and then drawing out that language. So um, it looks a little bit weird when we're doing flavor training because it is it is sometimes learning a new lang language and making an association um, with something that you may think that you're familiar with, but you might not be so familiar with um, the, the terminology and, and making those associations. So, I mean, flavor training can be as simple as cutting up orange slices and putting them in front of your panelists and saying, this is an orange. Um, it, it might seem silly, but um, it is actually really helpful. And you might be surprised that you probably can't distinguish differences between different citrus fruits. At least I know I couldn't until I uh, trained myself to be able to do it. Um, so that's that's kind of my, my general process is start with the emotion, try to tie language to it and do it in this uh, method where you are actually experiencing the sensation while having a discussion about it so that you can move from the subjective to the objective. That's an interesting point that you bring up. Um, we have so many assumptions around what things smell and taste like um, that are based on 
uh, a whole bunch of different inputs that are not necessarily even that thing. You mentioned an orange slice, but a lot of orange flavor for us is also uh, kind of filtered and conditioned through things like orange soda or, um, you know, orange slushies or uh, all of this other kind of, you know, flavor that's associated with orange, but this isn't actually an orange. Are you, are you trying to kind of break some of those assumptions or reset some of those assumptions? And, uh, you know, then how do you help people, uh, internalize those kinds of, uh, experiences. Yeah, I mean, we all come at flavor from our own lenses. We all have these cultural factors that come into play, experiential factors that come into play. And that's often seen as something that's negative when it comes to developing a standardized language. But in some ways, like I, I think that that makes uh, that's there's a real advantage to us all being really different in the ways in which we perceive. Um, it gives us kind of a broader lens of what flavor can actually be. Um, the difficulty is if you're working with a panel that is intended to kind of be really consistent within themselves, we do have to be speaking the same language and um, have a good understanding of uh, what, what do we actually mean with an orange. Now, you can really go overboard with this and spend a lot of time, um, you know, doing trainings and stuff. So you kind of, the brewery themselves have to determine what is the level of quality that they are going to achieve and therefore what kind of training should we be doing? Um, Because you can see that this can take a lot of time and, and effort. Um, but as, as far as like kind of just getting on the same page, um, I, I just like to to get people talking about their perception and um, get them uh, experiencing the same flavors and um, having a, a good understanding of what we mean of what we mean citrus to, to be. Um, again, when when conducting a training program, you have to have a pretty good idea of what the objective is. Um, if the objective is to detect and quantify what you would consider to be a flavor that doesn't exi- doesn't need to exist in your beer, um, then you're going to do maybe attribute training. But if your objective is to better understand your brand's flavor profile, um, then it might actually start with um, asking consumers what it is that they're perceiving and then developing language around um, that kind of platform. So um, those that kind of more accessible, flavor terminology. So I think um, the the objective really matters when determining what kind of trainings you're going to be doing with your panelists. Sure, sure. Is there are there some, you know, core uh, flavor associations and, you know, some baseline uh, you know, items, language, um, specific flavors uh, as it relates to beer that you find really important for tasters to understand. If you had to subset out, what would you find to be some of those most important uh, flavor areas for people to focus on? I'm not sure if you're going to like my answer to this, but I'm going to go with it. <laughs> so um, there, There's no right okay, or wrong great, answers. Great. There are, there's just your opinion. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, well, it, there's not just these definitive, you know, five compounds that you should know if you're a brewer. Um, I, I think what's most important for you to know is what makes your brands your brands. What what are the attributes that um, make up your brand profiles, um, so that you can better describe and understand uh, the products that you're trying to make. So understanding that the objective of of every brewery is essentially like a tied to your business objectives. It's to produce and sell a product that is pleasing to your consumer and that you can feel really proud of. Um, and in order to kind of attach your flavor knowledge to that main business objective. What matters most is being able to describe your beers as accurately as possible so that you can measure your consistency and measure if you are um, continuously hitting your, your target profiles, be it at the beginning stages of product development or as you're scaling up or as you are packaging and, you know, it, evaluating for shelf life. Um, basically, you just need to know what makes your beer your beer. Um, so I like to conduct my initial trainings around um, just setting flavor profiles for your products. Um, and 
a, a panel that is trained only on what we would quote consider to be off flavors, if you give them only that language, your brand profiles are going to be riddled with off flavors because that is the language that they know. And that is not what you're actually trying to make. So I like to start with what are we actually trying to make and what are the flavor descriptors that we can use to make sure that we ground ourselves in what our intention is with this product. Sure. And so if you're a, you know, if a Hefeweizen is a, a, you know, a primary product for you, or if even if you're a home brewer and you love to brew a lot of Hef, understanding what those typical and expected flavors are in the style, and then, you know, retraining yourself on what, you know, banana and clove actually taste like and what ripe banana tastes like versus green banana or tastes and smells, that might be a, a way to approach it from a kind of broader sense. Yeah, I, I think that that's exactly right. And you and I were kind of having the discussion before this official discussion about um, brewers really wanting to kind of sometimes see flavor in this like binary, like this belongs, this doesn't belong. Uh, these are the words that I use. These are not the words that I use. Um, that is that kind of like stringent mindset around um, developing your flavor language is really actually quite unique to the brewing industry. Um, that's something that I've found as I went beyond the brewing industry and started working in chocolate and um, cannabis and you know, wine and all these different products. Um, a lot of the emphasis is put on product development using language that's really accessible. Um, so that's that's kind of, they, they see it as, as very odd that we would focus so heavily on what should be there and what shouldn't be there. It's mostly just um, kind of what should be there. But as far as going back to, um, you know, if your brewery is primarily a Hefeweizen brewery, then yeah, it's important for you to understand um, phenolics and ester profiles um, because that's what makes up your brand. If you're a, an IPA-heavy brewery, then you might want to know a little bit more, brush up on your tropical fruits and your citrus fruits. If you're a, um, if you're an imperial stout brewery, um, maybe you want to like focus more on nutty roasted aromas and um, really break out different levels of toastiness. Um, so, you know, if, if you're focusing on, it, it really depends on what your main products are um, and then kind of spend a lot of time developing your language around that. Um, you see it a lot with, you know, these American light lager breweries, which still, you know, 90% of the, the beer consumed in the U.S. is still American light lager. <laughs> um, so a lot of these light lager breweries are very, very good at um, breaking apart cereal aromas um, and, and quantifying them. Because for their product, that's more or less flavor neutral. It really matters if the intensities of um, the cracker aroma are out of are out of balance. It really matters for those types of breweries, but maybe for uh, an IPA heavy brewery, which is you know probably I would I would wager to bet ninety percent of craft beer is probably an IPA heavy or IPA heavy breweries. Um, it might not be that important for them to suss out the intensities of the various attributes. What might be most important is does it have that citrus aroma? Does it have that grapefruit aroma? Does it uh, not have any presence of um, solventy aromas? And um, are they all are those things all in balance? Um, so it it depending on your product and the granularity that you need to achieve as a brewery, um, that's going to dictate where you focus your attention in in the training and language development world. It's almost like that old saw about Eskimos and the number of words that they have for snow. Right. <laughs> when it is the thing that you focus on, you may develop a more uh, advanced language or a more nuanced language to describe all the other elements in that very specific thing, even if you have no language for other things that don't enter into your experience. Um, I know you've got some specific exercises that you walk through uh, with with uh, you know, tasters to try to help cement some of these ideas in your mind. And I'd love to talk to you about that in a sec. Uh, but first, this episode is brought to you by Hopsteiner, your premium hop supplier dedicated to delivering quality hops and hop products in every package. Visit hopsteiner.com for a complete list of offerings or select shop hops to start ordering today. Also, Fermentus is the obvious choice for beverage fermentation. They've provided the beer industry from large and small breweries to home brewers with the best fermentation yeasts since 2003. Their yeasts are easy to use. Just pitch your Fermentus yeast directly into your wort. 
no rehydration necessary. To learn more about how Fermentis can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit Fermentis.com. Um, the act of tasting, smelling, uh, or I shouldn't say the act of tasting is also the act of smelling. Um, talk to me a little bit about the physical ways in which you lead people to taste and experience that beer, um, you know, and then build that language, but also fix that language in their mind. Um, or there is there, there's almost a ritual kind of approach that you take to this act of tasting. Is there not? Yeah. Yes. Um, I think that there's a really big difference between uh, evaluating beer and just drinking beer. Um, and I like to keep those two things separate so that I can kind of maybe turn off my brain when I just want to be drinking a beer at a bar. Um, Back when we went to bars, um, so I, I <laughs> it's so so long oh, ago, all years. of four four yeah. weeks. <laughs> um, so a, a lot of this, uh, a lot of that kind of ritual, um, I picked up from from a person that I respect in the industry a lot, um, Bill Simpson. Um, he he has this really great way of kind of going through doing doing the ritual of um, evaluating, getting your brain in the evaluation space. And I think it, it comes from acknowledging that we have to really hone in on our subconscious in order to um, kind of make those really strong associations with flavors that we need to be able to make. Um, so I like to start by holding the glass differently than I would normally hold the glass if I was just drinking a pint of beer. Um, you could go as far as holding the glass with your non-dominant hand. Um, and that kind of just signals to your brain that you are now in evaluation mode. You're not in drinking mode. Um, and then I like to break down the beer in its modalities. So if you think about flavor, the, the all-encompassing flavor, it's really a compilation of aroma both orthonasal and retronasal, so smelling in your nose and then breathing back out of your nose is all aroma. Um, and then uh, taste, so the you know the basic taste, sweet, salty, sour, bitter, umami, fatty, metallic. Um, taste is just the, those tongue tastes. And then mouthfeel, so what does it feel like on your tongue? Um, how does it feel in your palate, even going down your throat? So what is the, the feeling that you get? So that's kind of how flavor is compiled. And when you're running an analytical sensory program, um, it is important to break out those modalities into their individuals. Um, I think that it's important because it, it helps you to troubleshoot problems if you can pinpoint it to an aroma or if you can pinpoint it to a taste. Um, so I hold the glass differently. I smell in through my nose to get that orthonasal olfaction. And then I, I take a sip, let it warm up on my tongue and then breathe back out of my nose so that I can get that other sensation, that retronasal sensation, but still aroma. And then I let it sit on my tongue and, and evaluate the intensities of the tastes and um, the mouthfeels. So I like to break all those things down. And in Draft Lab, we were very intentional about breaking down each of those modalities so that the brewer has the tools to be able to troubleshoot and pinpoint exactly where you may be seeing a problem. For example, if every if the aroma is spot on, if it has all the nuttiness and the roasted characteristics, if that's all spot on, but the taste is too sweet, you could troubleshoot and go back to your process and look at your mash parameters, perhaps like maybe uh, maybe it's an under attenuated beer or something like that. So um, you can kind of at least troubleshoot if you break down based on those modalities. At the end of the day, um, sensory panels take effort to run and take resources. And so if you're not getting um, if you're not getting actionable feedback from your your panel. Uh, then it's all kind of for naught. So um, we made sure to kind of break out the modalities so that you could actually do some some troubleshooting like that. Sure. Um, in addition to looking at this kind of sensory approach as a you know kind of technical troubleshooting evaluative uh, kind of process, the other benefit of a sensory and a language approach uh, is something that uh, lots and lots of breweries and brewers, uh, home brewers and the like are doing today, which is um, you building a descriptive language that is also sexy and sells what they're making, you know, being able to 
describe, you know, flavors that are attractive and do it in an attractive way, but also in a thoughtful and a nuanced way, um, you know, and to push the creative element um, and the kind of marketing element uh, in a sense, uh, you know, for this beer, you know, becomes an important thing. You know, how do you work with folks and to help build a more kind of precise language around what some of these things are? It's particularly, um, you know, sticking in my mind right now because we've just in our latest issue of the magazine worked through loggers. And so terms in term like noble hop terms like floral um, and, you know, are I've, I've watched even our reviewers uh, and the brewers submitting beers with these kinds of descriptions use this word floral. Um, and it, it's so reductive and um, not necessarily um, very specific about the way that it describes the actual flavors. Um, or, or, you know, and so in tr- trying to you know think about this, how, how do you kind of break through some of the, um, I, I shouldn't I should say the, the more simplistic and immediate, uh, you know, kind of easy assumptions that uh, folks use with this kind of language and try to drill down even farther? I'm going to kind of address both sides of that question. Um, kind of the first side of that question was more around um, how do you develop language to kind of play off of that sexy marketing side so that you're speaking direct to your consumers in a way that is actually meaningful to them. And then the other side of the question is um, now start now that you have that broader terms, how do you kind of drill into more specific terminologies? So I'm, I'm going to take that first part first. Um, so, <laughs> so Sorry, I have a habit of asking um, multi-layered questions that... Uh... <laughs> no, I, I, I love it. I just needed to break it down for my brain. Um, so, sure, sure. so to address that first part of the question, I think that you're hitting on something that's really interesting and um, and often overlooked, ironically. Um, like I said at the beginning, like well, we're all in the business of trying to uh, get our products into consumers' hands and have that be a good experience for them. Um, and so how powerful is it to use their actual language to relay back to them what it is they're going to experience. So this is part of the reason why we developed our new tool called SampleOx. Um, SampleOx will allow for consumers to do their full flavor evaluation using lexicons that professionals use, using that kind of beer flavor background. Um, So they are able to say, how much do you like it using a, a hedonic scale? And then also, what are the main attributes that are in that product? And it's kind of a fun and engaging way to, to get consumers to do um, kind of help with product development. So what you get out of that as a brewer is an, a better understanding of what your consumers like and what are the attributes that are driving that liking in their actual language. Um, for example, what you put out there, you might think is kind of nutty and um, and caramely. Um, but if your if your consumers don't ever use the terms nutty and caramely, and instead they use the term uh, toasty and vanilla, um, and toasty and vanilla are two attributes that are heavily associated with liking. Then it is important that the brewer use the language that you know drives liking and that consumers understand and are using. And so this is just one of the ways that um, pairing that hedonic score with that descriptive test helps you to understand what are the drivers of liking for your products um, and also how enthusiastic are consumers about the product. Um, So that's, um, I'm all about using consumer language to reflect it back to them. And a good way of uh, capturing that is um, using tools like, like SampleOx. Um, so hopefully that answers Let's, I, before, yeah. <laughs> before we get in. Yeah. Before we get sure. into the second part of that question, I want to drill down on this one a little bit more. And I think that's an interesting piece. I, I think about these things way too much because it's my job uh-huh. to read descriptions. The brewers, uh, you know, provide for their beer, taste those beers, put those beers in front of our blind panel and kind of evaluate whether that, um, you know, the expectation is met by, um, the beer itself. Um, but what I find is that power of suggestion in the, you know, in the minds of 
of uh, the brewers can place by using that language is incredibly powerful. Um, and I say this to, to brewers all the time. When you look, if you go back and read, you know, untapped reviews, you will often find those, uh, and not, not that this is the ultimate, uh, you know, arbiter of, of what's right or wrong, but you will watch um, people drinking that beer, you know, consumers drinking that beer, uh, use the same language that a brewer used to describe it um, in both like con- confirmatory or, uh, um, you know, or negative kinds of ways to say, you know, they either, yes, I got all of this or no, I didn't get any of this. Um, that language can be a powerful thing. And those, you know, and I think what you're saying right there, using a kind of hedonic scale to, to find what the descriptors consumers like um and associate with good um is also a useful thing you know we um it kind of goes back to that old anecdote about um i've heard brewers mention about using a term like uh you know barnyard or horse blanket when describing uh you know kind of brett focused beers it's it's a term that we in the brewing world understand because we have positive associations for those kinds of things and those kinds of flavors your average consumer may not have that positive association. And so describing something in that term could be seen as a hugely negative uh, turnoff. Um, you know, and so I think that's, I think it's really interesting point there to look at the language you use. If, if your goal is making and selling beer and describing beer in a way that it will actually sell to consumers using language that they understand that they have a frame of reference for, and that they have a positive association with, is going to be useful for that. If somebody doesn't like things that are dank, then your IPA that's quote unquote dank is just not going to appeal or sell to them. Um, you know, whereas if you described that in a, a similar flavor term that they had a more positive association with, um, they may be more apt to try it. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, consumers all act pretty differently. And so I've often seen just this bimodality where um, there's maybe a population that can perceive dankness and they like it. And they're kind of in the likers category or um, those that perceive dankness and they don't like it. Um, I mean, I just saw it the other day in some data that I was looking through, there was like a a notable banana flavor in this beer. And um, it was, there was like this bimodal distribution with those that were detecting it as being banana-like. Some liked it and some didn't like it. Now, sometimes breweries see that as confirmation because they want to make something that is maybe polarizing, that maybe only... Um, kind of caters to this one sect of the consumer pool. Um, sometimes breweries want to make something that is does not have that bimodal distribution and you just want it to be liked generally. Um, so if, if you're a brewery that falls into the latter category, you might actually take out the banana flavor. You might change your yeast strain or something like that to make it more palatable for everybody. Um, but oftentimes, I think a lot of what the craft brewing world is doing is having a whole host of different potential flavor profiles out there that really cater to specific um, parts of the consumer base. Now it's extra important in that way to use the language that caters to the likers um, and then just basically also communicate to those dislikers that this isn't for you and maybe this other product is for you. Um, So, uh, you know, using flavor language that is just liked by the entirety of the population is maybe not where craft beer goes, but you can definitely see that happen more in the macro world where you are just trying to, to cater to, um, to the global palate. Um, when we talk about um, the second part of my old question that was probably five to eight minutes <laughs> ago, um, drill, drilling down into, uh, you know, kind of specifics, um, you know, moving past the, you know, it, it is, for a lot of tasters, um, they stop at first words. They stop at the kind of more simple and broad words. Um, and as you are trying to really think about what those flavors are, whether, whether it's, you know, again, trying to make it meet a brand standard or whether you're trying to think about what you really find compelling in something, um, and what might be causing or creating that element in it, um, moving past something as kind of broad as floral or tropical into some, uh, you know, more specific, uh, descriptors can be a useful thing. How do you kind of walk through and, and break down some of those, you know, quick and easy and simple, um, 
you know, descriptors and get into, you know, into the weeds, you might say, with, uh, um, you know, more complexity? Yeah. So um, I'm going to talk about the beer flavor map to answer that question. Um, so the, the beer flavor map was put together in 2016, I want to say. Um, it was a project um, that we worked on to just kind of update the the beer flavor language. Um, the the tool that was most noted as being the the um, helper in developing flavor language was the beer flavor wheel. Um, that tool was pretty dated. It was about thirty something years old, um, and really great revolutionary work done by Morton Milgard. Um, built off of light lager, built in the 70s, it needed a refresh. Um, so we kind of came up with the beer flavor map, which follows this hierarchy of perception that um, is consistent with like how, how our senses actually work. Um, so if you drill down into aromas, you can really start broad with fruity. Like most people can say, okay, I'm experiencing something fruity, but it's really nice to have a tool that guides the user through honing in on that flavor language. So, okay, we, we're experiencing something fruity. That fruitiness is citrusy. Now that I see citrus, tropical stone fruit, I see all these things in front of me. It's citrusy, okay? What kind of citrus? Is it grapefruit? Is it lemon? Is it lime? Is it orange? Um, tangerine, whatever. Um, and you can see all of the, the list of the different citrus fruits, and then you can select from there. But it starts with how we perceive, which is pretty broad, and guides the user down to drill into their senses. Um, the, the beer flavor map was partially a lot of the, the um, what kind of inspired uh, Draft Lab. So the, our... Um, the draft lab team was was built from um, kind of just trying to bring that flavor map to life. Um, the the developers that I we paired up with, um, they were kind of doing the same thing. They were working in New York and um, helping breweries to define their targets and analyze their beers for. Um, consistency and maybe the presence of defects and um, our paths met and in 2016 um, when we were kind of trying to bring that flavor map to life and um, it kind of made a lot of sense for us to to work together and that's kind of how it started um, and I'm sure everyone listening has seen those flavor maps as they were featured a couple issues ago in uh, as an editor's pick in Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. Um, and everyone listening definitely has to be a subscriber, right? Yes, uh, absolutely. <laughs> but no, but no, they are um, they're really valuable visual tools for kind of working through that. Whether you're a home brewer, whether you're a professional brewer, being able to kind of visualize and think about those things um, it makes a huge huge yep. difference. Yeah. So um, that's what we we built the the tools around like the the sample ox tools built around that kind of hierarchy and helping the user des better describe their flavor um, sensations and uh, draft lab is built with the same thing so i think like having having tools like that is uh really helpful um and then again it kind of goes back to what what does the brewer really need to know to um, identify what their targets are it might be good enough for you to just use the word tropical and have that be okay. And sometimes beers are just, you know, tropical. There's not like a specific, like this is guava. <laughs> um, sometimes it's like guava and pineapple and whatever. Um, so sometimes that's good enough. So I think um, it, it, you know, but again, on the flip side, if you're making a light lager, it might be really important for you to suss out the difference between like a biscuit and a cracker. Um, so so uh, yeah, the tools are tools are built to to do that, and um, I don't think that anybody, any professional, becomes so professional to where those tools become um, less important. Um, I I constantly I, I have the we have flavor maps now for a whole bunch of different products, and I'm constantly using them to better describe my perception. That you know that tip of the tip of the nose phenomena um, is is something that kind of is done away with if you can have a little bit of guidance to help you identify what it is you're you're sensing sure and, and you know that this i we all experience these things every single day you know i find myself even when i'm on my bike commute into the office back when i actually used to go into yes. the office which again seems so yes. long ago um 
you know, you, you're riding and smelling and, uh, you know, my, my bike commute takes me past five different breweries, uh, on any given morning. And so, you know, naturally you can smell that, uh, that, you know, wort being boiled early on, but you know, whether it's, um, you know, riding past a specific bush along the way that, uh, in the springtime that produces a certain smell or, um, even smelling dry leaves when you're out on a mountain bike ride in the forest, like they all have, you know, there's, the, the specific ways of, of sensing something and then trying to file that back away in my head. Um, I often find myself thinking, what beard did I have that, uh, that I, that I sensed that in, you know, to try to kind of create a reference for that. How, you know, in your kind of day to day, uh, you know, do you kind of build those memories for yourself? Yeah. I think you just hit on something that, that helps define you know, quote, good and not so great tasters. Um, I think to, to be um, a taster who's, you know, really good at this is like, you just have to be curious. And I think anybody who's still listening to this podcast, you're a curious person um, and you care about flavor. And so chances are you're a good taster because you're really paying attention to um, your surroundings and you're, you're paying attention to what, what drives flavor. Um, so I, I think that it is important that, um, you know, panelists take time to actually smell the roses and, and get curious about what their surroundings are all about. We tend to make, um, those flavor associations based on our experience. Like that's, that is the highest form of knowledge, that experiential knowledge. And so that's going to mean getting your nose in a lot of things. Um, and and making those really mindful associations with those things, kind of stopping in your tracks and closing your eyes and taking it in um, and making that kind of memory association is going to help when it comes to um, utilizing those those experiences um, to describe beers. Um, let's I, I, we've been able to spend a lot of time talking about the positive elements of, of flavor and sensory and that's on purpose because I didn't want to you know solely focus on off flavors but I would love to pivot and talk about off flavors for a bit before we do that this episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications publishers of Small Brewery Finance by Maria Pearman How to Brew by John Palmer and the forthcoming actually now available Historical Brewing Techniques by Lars Marius Garshall established in 1986 Brewers Publications Publications has published more than 50 books of enduring value for amateur and professional brewers alike. Visit brewerspublications.com today to browse the complete catalog of books and ebooks. Also, Craft Beer and Brewing's all access subscriptions give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, a special deep dive email only for all access subscribers, premium content, and all access. Uh, exclusive merchandise. Go to beerandbrewing.com and click on the subscribe button to join now. There is no better time to do it than when you are holed up at home, socially distancing and self-quarantining. Um, Lindsay, let's talk a little bit about off flavors. Uh, when it comes to sensory and programmatic kind of approaches to uh, flavors, oftentimes, as you mentioned earlier, we focus on the negative, which is those flavors that we don't want in beer because for whatever reason, um, whether it's the kind of competition basis that has driven so much of craft beer for the last 30 years. Um, and this idea that, you know, uh, of rooting out those bad flavors, um, we tend to spend a lot of time focusing on what shouldn't be there. Um, talk to me a little bit about how, you know, wh how brewers, um, can and should start to familiarize with these things that we have called off flavors, how you feel about even referring to them as off flavors, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, uh, how to uh, become better at understanding their place within beer flavors. I'm glad that we spent the bulk of our time talking about, um, on flavors, like what makes, what makes your brands, your brands, um, because I think that that's really where a lot of brewers should spend the bulk of their their time because that's what really matters. And um, the barrier to entry with doing that kind of, of flavor language development is is much lower than if you're kind of doing some more nitty gritty, um, you know, quote off flavor training. Um, my general philosophy and approach to flavor training is pr quite liberal. Um, I think that maybe comes from working for a, a, a for new Belgium that is kind of like 
very kind of follow your folly and um, a little bit kind of more liberal with our approach to um, most things. Um, so I think it, it partially comes from that. Um, just not really staying within the confines of styles, for example. Now that doesn't really help us. It didn't really help New Belgium so much, like when it comes to like winning medals and stuff, because they we typically didn't, you know, brew to style, um, because we were doing the things that we really wanted to be doing and not really playing within those confines. Um, so as far as though like honing in on um, potential problems for for your brands, um, I think that doing analytical type flavor training is a very um, good thing to do. And it, it does take time and investment. Um, but I do think that it is, it is useful um, because part of quality control is, you know, there's one side of it, it is understanding, did we make the thing that we wanted to make? Does it have the characteristics that we know need to be there to be within profile? But the second flip side is, um, is this defect free and um, and you know good to good to go because it's free of defects. Um, that defect free piece is typically achieved through what we call attribute training, um, and that can be done in a number of ways. I think the the most common way of doing that is to kind of buy flavor standards. There are a number of different uh, flavor standard companies out there that will produce the food grade chemical standards that can be added into your product so that you can train people on um, what does it what does isoamyl acetate actually smell like and taste like when it's just put into a beer? I think that that's a, a great way right. of doing it. It does take investment, of course. And I would say if you are going to do that, um, it is, of course, important to, to be safe with that whole thing. So I'm, you know, all about having food grade standards using, you know, any of those companies that, that make them. Um, but I think what's most important is to track and trend that data, um, I've, I've heard, I've been a part of panels that do flavor training, but they don't document the outcome of that training. And so, you know, it's not enough to say I once smelled diacetyl and therefore I am trained on diacetyl. Um, it's not enough to say I go to flavor training on a weekly basis and I am often exposed to diacetyl and therefore I know diacetyl. It's really important that that data be tracked and trended. Um, so that you can find the holes in your overall panel's palette um, and you know to not maybe rely on one person who is anosmic to diastole, meaning that they can't actually smell it. They are physically incapable of smelling it. And we all have our different anosmias. We all have our different sensitivities, which is why a panel is so powerful. Um, but you don't really know what those anosmias or sensitivities are unless you're actually tracking that data. Um, so in, instead of making assumptions about who is, you know, sensitive to certain things, um, the, the data needs to be, to be captured. Um, so you have to have a good understanding of who can taste what, um, at what level. And, um, so that it can inform maybe who you call in, um, when you suspect you might have a problem like a diastole problem. And so in New Belgium, you developed very significant, um, profiles, of all of your tasters and could you, know, you had that knowledge of who could sense these things at a very high level or at a very th low threshold, um, as the case may be, uh, you know, in case you needed to be able to dive deeper on some of these things. Oh, absolutely. Um, we had years and years of data, um, for each of our panelists and, um, we ran flavor trainings on a regular basis. Um, and basically we're able to, to capture the information about how many times has a panelist seen a certain attribute and what is their percent recognition, um, and at what level. Now we didn't really frequently do, um, a thre threshold testing because threshold testing takes a really, really, really long time. And you have to have a good idea about why you're doing threshold testing, um, you know, if, if the reason for doing threshold testing is for ego, that's not a good enough reason. Um, but <laughs> if you're trying to make a decision about, okay, when do we crash cool our tanks at what level of, of, uh, diastole does this need, can it safely be at for us to be able to crash our tanks? That's a legitimate reason to do a threshold test. Um, so the, you know, in my time at new Belgium, I probably did four. 
um, which, you know, I was there for about nine years and I, I did about four of them. Um, so, I mean, I, right. I see these breweries doing threshold tests. I'm like, woof, that's, that's a lot of work for not many reasons. Um, but we had a database at New Belgium um, to track our, our panelists' performance, how they were doing over time, where their sensitivities were, and maybe what they were anosmic to. And um, that tool is is in Draft Lab. There's a training tool in Draft Lab that will um, allow professionals to run flavor training, attribute trainings, um, and you can trend your data over time and actually pivot the the data really easily to see it based on on uh, chemical. So um, if I only want to see my good diacetyl tasters, you can just look at your good diacetyl taste and see who's best. You can also look at specific panelists. So you can see, all right, Lindsay has an overall percent recognition rate of 80%. This is where she excels. And this is maybe where she has some problems. So all that stuff is integrated in, into um, the Draft Lab QC program as well. Um, because I, I really do believe that it is, it's very important in being able to understand um, as your brewery gets bigger and as you can actually start segmenting your panel and asking particular panelists to sit on on certain panels, then it becomes a little bit more important to be able to do that. But at many small breweries, um, it's not something that you can, you can actually, uh, you can't actually segment your panel anyway, because you might have just like four people. So I love that the language has shifted from off flavor to attribute. Um, Talk to me a little bit about that, even that that New Belgium approach to that. So when developing a brand standard let's see which part do i want to take take on here <laughs> you don't make it so, easy sorry, Jamie. I, I did it again <laughs> i did it again i did it again um yeah so when developing a brand standard um we kind of had a, a process about um that it's a relatively long process but when developing a brand um we first have to have a good and noted intention about what the brand is supposed to be. Um, And that can be just that objective flavor profile. So we know because of, you know, for example, we know that for consumer research, with the consumer research that we've run, that people want something that's light-bodied, tropical, and low bitterness. And so those are now the the broad brand parameters that we're trying to achieve with this product. Um, so then when the, when the brewer goes to make that brand, what I ask them to do is um, actually create that target flavor profile that they were going for. So actually do a full description. What does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? What does it feel like? Um, and then I can use that information to give the brewer really direct feedback. It's not like with no judgment. I mean, sensory scientists should never like be, uh, be judgmental about anything. It's just really objective. Um, all right. This, these are the parameters that you were going for. And then when we gave that beer to our panelists and asked them to do their own description of it in a blind kind of setting, they came up with these flavor profiles. And did you hit that or not is the second is the second question we ask. So, um, so the, the process is understanding what you're trying to make by kind of connecting it to a potential consumer outcome. Um, second is creating a target profile before brewing. I mean, any brewer, when you're creating a recipe, you are considering what you want it to taste like. You're considering, okay, I want to put caramel malt in it because I want a little bit of residual sugar and I want a little bit of caramel aroma. Um, I'm putting uh, sods hops in it because I want some spicy, herbal, noble aroma. Like you have a good idea of what you're doing. And so when you're creating that brand profile, writing down what you're trying to get out of it is going to make you a better brewer. And you can measure um, your success once your panelists have done their full evaluation in a blind setting. Um, and then and then what we would give our panelists and how I suggest people do it using uh, Draft Lab 2 is to then run a true to target test. So now that you have already done your description, did this brand meet the flavor profile that was intended by the brewer? Yes or no. And if no, then why? And that kind of closes that feedback loop to where I can go back to the brewer and say, you intended on doing this. This is what the panel said about it in a really objective fashion. You did hit that nutty aroma or you did hit that caramel aroma, but you maybe didn't hit that noble saws aroma. Um, and this is 
you know, how we know that. So that's kind of the, the main process and progression of getting at um, understanding what the flavor profile is. Um, so we would, we would create the flavor profile based on what the panelists said, um, based on how they described the final product that we knew we were going to be scaling up using their language. Um, and then that becomes the, the target profile. So just giving that profile to your panelists, that then becomes the target. You don't want to kind of lead the witness when developing a flavor profile. You just kind of want to give them the beer, let them do their description, find the commonalities in the flavor terms that they're using, aggregate that, and um, create a brand target profile from that information. So hopefully that answers your question. That's interesting. And and that, that brings uh, to mind another question, and it's something that you kind of alluded to a little bit earlier, um, time uh, and context impacts everything here. It impacts you know, the palates of those tasters that you have tasting and evaluating. It impacts, say, you know, the consumers that you're polling and what they are you know, and doing research with to find what they want, um, the flavors that those consumers are, are tasting over a you know five or 10 year period may change significantly. Um, and so their associations with those things can change over time. And so naturally speaking, how a brand and a brand standard might appeal or be perceived by uh, either your tasters themselves who have their own life and health things that are moving forward and consumers, you know, whose context is constantly changing. Time itself has to have an impact on this. Over, over 10 years at New Belgium, how much of an impact and in what ways did you see these things shift over time, both from a taster perspective and from a consumer and then therefore kind of brand expectation standpoint? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and in fact, I was having this conversation uh, yesterday um, in the context of Fat Tire, actually. Um, so Fat Tire, when that beer was produced uh, in the like late 80s, early 90s, it was seen as this very aggressive, aggressively flavored, high impact craft beer. Um, and that's, you know, that's where craft beer was. It was kind of in its early stages. IPA was just like a, a glimmer in our eyes. Um, and what's happened over time is um, even, even in the time at, at, you know, the 10 years at New Belgium, as the overall beer flavor profile changes, um, the context for which we're measuring a specific brand is going to impact um, kind of the intensities that we're integrating into the flavor profile. And so um, over time, we had to modify Fat Tire's flavor profile to kind of be more um, within the context of beer. Um, so what was an aggressively bitter and uh, like heavy bodied beer is now c considered to be a light medium bodied beer that's um, more sweet than it is bitter um, because that's where, where beer is. So I think that it is important to uh, revisit brand flavor profiles a as they change and as they they kind of evolve according to consumer preference and i do believe that brands really should evolve like you know to consumer preference i'm not a believer that brands should just sure. like maintain as they are just out of like some kind of philosophical reason um, i do think that they need to be updated and um, incremental changes should be made based on the palette of your consumers because um, it is changing and developing. Oh, sure. I mean, we've seen incredible sweetness enter the beer world in a way that we'd never really seen it in the, well, I shouldn't say we'd never, there were multi moments in the, in the nineties where um, those kinds of multi and sweet beers tended to dominate. Now we've got, uh, you know, beers with lactose and incredibly high finishing gravities. Uh, and that certainly changes the context with which all drinkers, you know, approach and taste yep. beer. Um, yeah. You know, and then at the same, at the same time, this is also, it's not just beer. I mean, I love, I know that, you know, brewers love to decry, uh, certain brewers, a certain class of brewers love to decry these kinds of things. Um, you know, but you've got a consumer base that's also, you know, drinking sweetened lattes from Starbucks and that has as much impact on their, their, you know, taste and palate and their tolerance, uh, for this kind of thing, like sweetness and beverages, um, you know, as other beers do themselves. And so, uh, you know, looking at that kind of whole context of everything that people are eating and drinking as impacting the way that their palate uh, impacts, I think 
can be rather important. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, the context is changing, the consumer is changing, and so we kind of need to maintain relevancy for those consumers. And um, that's partially what's important about kind of being able to do consumer research so that you can understand how are, how is liking modifying with this product over time? Um, and maybe right. what are the segments that, that tend to like it and what are the segments that, that don't like it so that you can better um, market and place your products um, in a, in a intentional fashion. Um, yeah. So the, the second part of your question too is about, um, was about tasters, but first I want to I want to acknowledge that you you just said multi moment, and I think that you need to use it <laughs> somewhere. I think like your next <laughs> podcast should be multi moments with Jamie. Um, <laughs> okay, so besides that, um, <laughs> I, it's my it's my dream. I mean, you know, for for me, I started drinking. I, I turned twenty one in nineteen ninety five, and that was craft mm-hmm. beer at the time. You know, I drank a lot of Scottish ale, um, Burt Grant's. Yeah, you know, Scotch Ale, McEwen's, and uh, Bell Haven. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to drink a whole lot yeah. of those beers, and they're just not as common anymore. Uh, it is one of my longstanding life goals to to bring back that kind of sweeter malty beer as its own thing. But uh, you know, uh, that's I'm still working. Yeah, on that. I hear you. You and um, I both grew up with a with a whole host of malty moments in our world, and uh, I I'm I'm a fan. I think that the malt is going to come back. Yeah. <laughs> It's going to make a resurgence. It's it's all it's all cyclical. Yeah. It will definitely yeah. happen for sure, for sure. Well, talk talk to me mm-hmm. just a little bit about uh, you know the shift in time with tasters themselves, and uh, you know how how much kind of drift and change you find over time with people, uh, individual tasters. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, taste perception changes pretty pretty dramatically, even within a person, um, as they experience new things, or maybe as physical changes happen. Um, we always joked in the sensory lab that we were always the first to know when someone was pregnant <laughs> because, uh, things change. <laughs> and first of all, they also start leaving panel cause you know, you're not drinking, but, um, <laughs> sure, sure. um, but yeah, I mean, just physical changes happen even as you exercise, um, if you're doing like a lot of vigorous activity, your sense perception is going to change. And as you know, you kind of um, gain more experience or eat different foods or whatever, things are going to change in your world. And so one of the, one of the things that you try to do as a sensory scientist is try to um, take care of all of those um, ancillary forms of bias that could potentially skew the results of your data and also make sure that you're tracking your person themselves as well. Um, so having a, a database of how your how your panelists are performing over time is also really important. Um, and this is also why you have a panel, not just one person making your flavor decisions, because that one person could have gone on a really long run over the weekend and they can no longer smell like floral aromas. Or maybe they just um, wash their hands using a really floral soap and they now only perceive floral aromas. Um, so it's really important to kind of have a, a group of people that are doing their objective flavor evaluation and for the sensory scientists to trend what's happening with that group um, because they are individual instruments um, to use the analogy of, of like a pH meter. Like it's, it's all, you know, you all have your different pH meters and if they're all calibrated to the same pH, then that's, that's really great. But over time there's going to be a little bit of drift and they need um, some ushering back, um, and and some some recalibration um and also just measuring how they're doing over time is going to be important sure sure um before we close here uh two sides of the same question um what do you think small brewers spend too much time worrying about and what do you wish more brewers uh home brewers pro brewers and the like would pay more attention to oh well that's a good question um (laughs) I, I think that it is in, okay. So I feel like running a sensory panel and I've heard this a lot, um, is a scary thing for many because you have this image in your mind of what a, you know, perfectly calibrated honed in group of sensory experts is supposed to look like with a booth setting and, you know, they're highly trained and all this kind of stuff. And that image 
can be really disheartening for small craft brewers that just want to use flavor evaluation as, you know, a means of continuing to make product and process decisions. And so I think what a lot of small brewers get bogged down with or pay more too much attention to is those kind of is some of the, you know, admittedly some of the nitty gritty details that we just discussed. And they see that and they're like, you know, I can't do that. I don't have the time. I don't have the resources to be able to run that kind of highly calibrated sensory panel. And so I throw my hands up and I'm not going to do it. Um, So I think there's too much time spent on trying to achieve the perfect um, and, you know, therefore not being able to go with the good. Um, so, so I would kind of encourage, um, brewers to, to acknowledge that what they're already currently doing is sensory analysis. You're tasting your beers. Um, you're making process decisions based on that information. It might just be you standing by, um, by the fermenter and making a decision of whether or not you move that product. But that's, that's a sensory that's a sensory tool that you just use to make a decision about your process. And if we can just kind of go with those things and add an additional layer of, um, of validity to that, to that, you know, data capture, then you're, you're making that first step in, you know, setting your brand targets such that you can um, kind of follow any kind of trends or, or, um, process deviations that might be occurring. Uh, so yes, I think pe- we we spend too much time getting bogged down in the details and I would like brewers to spend more time just knowing that they are doing sensory analysis and then um, kind of adding an additional layer of validity to that measurement so that they can continue to make really solid decisions in their process. Sure, sure. Um, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GD Chillers. Old Orchard are the industry's juice blending experts. Hopsteiner is your premium supplier for quality hops and hops products. Fermentist yeasts are the obvious choice. Brewers Publications has published more than 50 books for amateur and professional brewers. And Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions are the very best way to support this podcast. Um, Lindsay, if people want to learn more about you and learn more about Draft Lab, maybe check out these flavor maps that you've talked about. Or if they're a brewery that might be interested in uh, taking a look at the software, where do they find you? Uh, We can be found on DraftLab.com, D-R-A-U-G-H-T Lab.com. I can also be contacted directly directly. through my email or just from info at draftlab.com or my email is lindsay at draftlab.com. So you can always contact me. Um, And I do want to note that um, in this kind of pandemic era right now that we're in, we are actually making Sample Ox, our consumer research platform available to breweries at no cost. Um, So that's kind of our way of hoping to keep breweries engaging with their consumers and keep consumers engaged with the brands they really like. And so if you do want to try out our our new consumer research platform, um, we can also be contacted at info at sampleox.com, ox as in the animal, O-X. Um, so we can be contacted there and we can set you up with a extended trial during this time. Very cool. Uh, Lindsay Barr, uh, Draft Lab and Sample Ox. Uh, thanks for talking with us about uh, sensory on the podcast today. Awesome. Thanks, Jamie. Yeah. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.